Well, last week we looked at the conclusion of Stephen's defense to the Sanhedrin as he was getting ready to uh, uh, come in with not just a new understanding of the interpretation of the scriptures, but he comes in at the end with an accusation. And the accusation that he has in chapter 7, at, at the end of chapter 7, um, is pretty, hmm, well, it's awkward, I think. <laughs> he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your father, not persecute. And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Whoa. <laughs> Can you imagine? Think about um, accusations. Have you, have you had people accuse you of something? How many people have had somebody accuse you of something? <laughs> That's pretty much everybody. <laughs> what do you, how do you respond when somebody accuses you of something? What, what, what is your response, Christopher? You go to the teacher? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's a pretty good response. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Not all of us have teachers that we can go to. My, my first reaction, especially if it's my wife, is that I'm going to fight back. <laughs> Isn't that silly? Especially if it's over a, a road sign or something that we see on the road as we're traveling down the road. She says, did you see that? You know, and you're <laughs> what, what happens? When we are accused, and I think there are a bunch of responses that we have when, when, uh, when we feel like somebody is accusing us of something. Uh, I wrote down a few uh, possible responses. I thought, um, uh, do we ignore them? Do we apologize? Do we accuse the accuser? Do we get mad? Do we shout? Do we deny? Do we throw things? <laughs> I know some people that throw things. Do we pout? Do we walk away? Do we repent? Do we ask how you can change? Anyway, at the end of his incredible understanding and Holy Spirit-filled speech to the Sanhedrin, the end of it in this accusation is basically a death sentence for him. I look at that and I, I'm saying, oh my goodness, some of us uh, may be a bit more sensitive, but I look at this, why is this so, this accusation so powerful that it's going to drive men to murder? That wasn't one of the responses that, you know, I, I haven't been... I haven't responded to accusations with a, a desire to kill somebody. That's not really been <laughs> my response. Um, but in, in this particular text, I, I want to see what the result is. And I would like to know, what is it behind this, this intense 
anger turned murder, murderous plot in the hearts of these religious men. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want anything like this to happen in church. <laughs> you know, that people get so mad at one another in, in, in the church that they want to start killing one another. That, that, what kind of church is that, you know? And so I'm sitting here looking at this, and, and let's start reading through to Acts 8, 3. Now, when they heard this, that's the Sanhedrin, that's the rulers of the of the people, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see heavens, the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Lord, open up. Well, if I've been part of a, a leader in an organization that's close to 4,000 years old, we can trace our history back. We've had an oral history and we've understood that in the midst of a day when people believed in many gods and, and they had a fear of gods and they worshipped idols made of stone and wood and, and they worshipped uh, the sun, moon and stars. And, and this was true whether they were in Egypt or in Italy or in Greece or over in Mesopotamia or down in in, uh, in Africa, it didn't make any difference. They had a whole series of gods that they worshipped. Uh, when I was in India uh, for the first time, I, I remember having uh, <laughs> getting caught up with all these deities. You can't keep up with them because they have millions. And uh, you don't uh, touch a cow. Cows are holy. So if a cow wants to walk down the middle of the road, you have to avoid it. If you're on an on, on a interstate <laughs> and there's a cow there, guess who has the right of way? <laughs> you do not want to run into a cow. You're going to be mobbed and people are going to get after you. We're on this bus heading up the Himalayas and uh, I take a look outside and there's all these monkeys there. 
And the people put down their windows and they start throwing food to the monkeys. I'm sitting there, what are they throwing food to the monkeys for? And they said, well, because the monkeys get really mad and angry. And if you don't feed them, they will attack you. Why? Because the monkeys are gods. I'm going, oh Lord, this is, this is ridiculous. The reason why they attack you is because you have accustomed them <laughs> to being fed by buses that, I'm going, this is crazy. And yet in the midst of this situation, if you've got something that you have defended and You've had to stand up in the face of all these gods and say there's only one God. And you have to say he has given us his law. This is how you're supposed to live. These are the moral guidelines for living a good life. And and you are responsible to make sure that from one generation to the next, they understand that there is a defense going on for this law and this encounter with God. And you know that God has come to make his dwelling place amongst people in the temple. And in the temple, it started in, in the tabernacle in the, in the desert when they built this tabernacle that God came to dwell with his glory in what was called the Holy of Holies. And it was a cube. And outside this cube, it was all shut off. And, and you weren't allowed to go in. You had to be holy to go in there. You had to purify yourself, give sacrifices. And then the priest would only go in once a year. And when he went in, he had to have uh, some bells on, on his and, and a rope tied to him so that if somehow the bells stopped ringing and you knew that in the presence of God he had died because the glory, the light of God that was, that was on, enthroned upon the Ark of the Covenant with the angels on the side and this, this light that's there, if he dies, you can pull him out without getting yourself in danger. I mean, what an incredible thing. So then you have the holy place, which has all, you know, lamps and bread and water. And and then you had the stuff before the temple. Actually, you know, up in Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania, they've got a replica of, of the tabernacle. It's great. Great place, great museum to go visit. And you can have an idea of both the size of these things. It's a lot smaller than you think. But during the day when they were traveling in the desert, there was this cloud that led them. And at night, it was a pillar of fire. And when they made camp, then this came and dwelt within the Holy of Holies. I mean, this is part of your history. And then when... when Solomon built the temple, the Holy of Holies was in the temple. And the same process in this temple. We have the encounter where heaven came to earth in the temple and we are the key guards. We're the keepers of this place where God has come, the one true God who created heaven and earth. And now, we are looking for the hope of Israel, the Messiah who will return to reestablish the kingdom of David, 
which is going to set us free from these idol-worshiping Romans that are out there. They're going to set us free and establish a new kingdom right here where we once again will rise up and be a leading nation amongst the nations. That's the hope. That's our goal. That's everything we're looking for. And the people were being drawn aside by this man Jesus. And, and, and now, after we've dealt with him, there are people talking now about him being raised from the dead. And not only that he's raised from the dead, but that he is the Messiah, the one who we have been hoping would come, that he actually came and that he is establishing a new kingdom. But we had him killed. Not only did we have him killed with false witnesses that we paid and all this other stuff, we know what we did. We understand that when he died on a tree, on a wooden cross, that he was cursed. And cursed is everyone who dies. The Messiah cannot be cursed. He's dealt with and he's done with. You can't come to us with this kind of an accusation. Because if your accusation against us is true, then everything that we have built our lives on is false. If what you're saying, Stephen, is right... If Jesus really is the Messiah and we killed him, there is no hope for us. If what you are saying, then my purpose in life, my work, my job, everything is useless. It has no more value. Suddenly, that Stephen levels against the rulers of the, of, the, of the entire Jewish nation, right there, they're taking a look to see that there is a, a problem. Hmm. I'm sorry, I, I want to make sure I've got my notes here that I can, I can look at. I, 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 he is, he, th there, is, there is light and, and darkness. There's day, there's night. It, it's two Entirely different ways of looking at the world. What, what Stephen is saying, in essence, is this. The kingdom of God is not something that looks like Rome. It's not something that looks like King David it's not something that looks like everything that you can imagine a kingdom is supposed to look like. It's a ruler who's going to come to dwell in your hearts, living inside of you by the Holy Spirit, and is going to cross borders, is going to cross languages, is going to cross cultures. And no matter where you go, when you find somebody who has met this Jesus, you have something in common with them. You have the same Holy Spirit living inside of you that's inside of them. Whether you can communicate with the language, whether your culture is the same, is irrelevant when it comes to knowing who Jesus is. The Messiah that God has sent to rule over the earth 
The only way that could happen is if he died to take away the sins of the whole world. That's the only way it happens. But that confrontation is, if what you're saying is true, then everything I believe and everything I have lived for and everything I have worked for and everything within me that, that is saying that I have tried to serve this one God is wrong. And, and what does that say about me? With a loud voice, they, they try to drown out what he's saying. They cover their ears. What did he say? You are uncircumcised in heart and ears. And it's like they're trying to keep their ears on instead of having their ears cut off. I'm sitting there going, you haven't, you are blind to what God is doing that the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the patriarchs and all of the prophets that have come, all of them were speaking of this day when the gospel is going to go into all the world. <laughs> Not just to us. I mean, you, you, you sort of changed the scope, how are these people in the Sanhedrin going to manage that kind of a big picture when they can't even manage the little picture where Rome is governing over them? The interesting part here is that the word faith, pistis, in Greek doesn't, we have a lot of definitions for what faith is, but this is one major definition. It means faithfulness or loyalty. It, the importance of that is this, that if Jesus is the king, then our faithfulness and loyalty is primarily to Jesus, not to Caesar, not to Herod, not to the patriarchs, not to the family, not to the Torah, it's to Jesus. And so if my faith, my faithfulness and my loyalty is to Jesus, that is so radical to the way of life that's been there. And so what do I do when faced with that kind of accusation and the people are listening? Do I establish who I am? Do I establish what we believe that we were called by God to do? Or do I repent? The interesting thing is, in this particular case, is that the accusers the people who brought the false accusations against Stephen, the accusers, by their law, is they have to be the ones who throw the stones. And they take off their cloaks, their outer cloaks, and get ready for throwing a lot of stones. They're going to sweat. They're out here to do damage. They put their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, in that kind of a situation, it means that Saul is more than just agreeing to the death. He's been an instigator for the zealots who made the accusations and he's approving of their killing him. He has been behind them with his zeal and now we have an introduction to the zealous young Saul later who will become known as Paul. And he 
is going to protect with everything that he can the, the leadership, the tradition, the structure of what we have ha- had handed down to us from generation to generation. Get rid of them. Let's purify Israel from this kind of evil that's coming up on the inside. And I begin to look at how Stephen died. I see that there's this incredible door, door, I'll call it a door of salvation for the Gentiles that's being opened. The fascinating thing about the death of Stephen, as it's just been recorded to us here, is how closely it resembles the very situation that Jesus went through. It it starts off in chapter 6. It says in verse 8 there that Stephen has grace and power. He works wonders and signs amongst the people. In chapter 6, verse 9, he enters into dispute with those who challenge him. And in verse 11, it includes spies. He is arrested in verse 12 and brought to trial before the Sanhedrin in 6, 12 to 15. We see the false witnesses in verse 13 who are accusing him. That we can see not in Luke, but we see it in Mark and Matthew. We see that he's taken outside the city in 58, seven, chapter 7, verse 58. There's a matter of clothing being discarded. In this case, it's not his own private clothing, but the clothing of the witnesses who are going to kill him. We notice that Stephen prays. And that he asks for forgiveness for his murderers. He's buried by pious people. There is a correlation here as a witness of Jesus of one who possesses the same spirit. Jesus was silent when he was accused in front of the Sanhedrin, but he did say to his disciples, In Luke 21 and 15, I will provide you eloquence and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to oppose or refute. Interesting, isn't it? So at that moment when the Holy Spirit gives Stephen the words to say, he's standing there full of the Holy Spirit It started off with his face glowing like that of an angel and now he goes through this entire process willing to die. Now, not everybody became a martyr. A lot of people left in the dispersion in chapter 8. We saw that they started to go and take with them this gospel to Judea and to Samaria and then they went on beyond that. But it's fascinating to me to see how we end this period of Luke's telling about the growth of the church in Jerusalem and we're entering into the time of Judea and Samaria even as Jesus had told the disciples on the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1 
You shall be my witnesses. You shall receive power and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, as well as in Judea, as well as Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. And now we're seeing that shift from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria at the very expense of this fabulous man of God, who when he enters into death, he is going through much of the same experiences that Jesus went through. Incredible, isn't it? It's, it's like Jesus went through it for the Jews first, and now Stephen is going through it as a Hellenist. He, is, he has a Greek name. He is a Jew from, like Paul, <laughs> who was Saul at the time because he was named after the great king, the first king of Israel. And, and so you've got, you've got, he probably knew him from the synagogues, he knew who Stephen was, and, and so he stands up against what he considers the, this our heritage and tradition to get rid of it. And yet Stephen goes through the same series of events in the Holy Spirit that Jesus went through. And it's going to open the door now to the Gentiles. It's going to spread this gospel even further. All right. <laughs> We're introduced here to Saul or Paul. Um, we see him being uh, convinced that Jesus is not the Messiah and that we have to get rid of this kind of biblical interpretation violently, if necessary, to keep our zeal for God alive. He believes what he's doing is for God. The interesting thing is that during this event, he is going to be exposed to a messianic interpretation of the scriptures. In other words, later on, we're going to see him taking the same arguments that Stephen presented, and he's going to be using them. After he meets Jesus in Damascus, there's going to be a major change, but he is going to come to the same conclusions that Stephen has. Now, the key event here in this experience is not um, do we have to become martyrs or do we have to prepare ourselves for persecution. When the time comes, if we do enter into that, God's going to deal with us, give us the strength at the time that we need it. If we don't need it now, he's not going to give it to us. He gives us what we need at the time when we need it. When we call unto him, he will hear us and answer. I mean, that, that's the way God operates. He doesn't prepare us for everything in the future, but he continues to strengthen us in our faith from time to time. And, and then when we face specific issues, he comes to meet with us in those specific issues. That's a great truth for us to know, that uh, 
I don't have to get ready right now for persecution, but if persecution comes, he's going to be there. (laughs) And he's going to give me the words to say and the things to do. The real issue here is not who is this Superman, Stephen. The real issue is not um, the issue of persecution. The real issue here is who is the Holy Spirit and where is the Holy Spirit active? You see, it wasn't just Stephen that did these things. It was he was filled with the Holy Spirit. There was something that happened on the inside of him that gave him the courage and the boldness to stand up and face sin the way it really was to the very accusers, knowing that this is dangerous. He was calling sin, sin. You crucified the Messiah. That's, you can't get more direct. And in this whole process, he looks at it and he says, uh, both in the accusations, he has a revelation. In the midst of this, both, you see, when he's talking about, about the accusations, he says, you are not open to the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit when, when he attacked them. He gazed intently into heaven. He, he both tells them, you do not yield to the Holy Spirit, but he, when he looks up into heaven, is full of the Holy Spirit. The whole event of his life and his death is marked by the fact that he is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus, the one who has come to live within him by the power of his Spirit. That's That's the dramatic thing. You see, we need to understand that because this Spirit is the same Spirit that He gives to everyone who calls on His name. He doesn't exclude people from being filled with the Holy Spirit when they repent and turn to Jesus. The way in which Jesus comes to live inside of us is by His Spirit change our way of thinking. It's His Spirit who changes our way of talking. It's His Spirit who changes the way that we think. It's His Spirit who causes things to happen through us that we cannot understand. He does miracles through us. It has nothing to do with what position you have in the church. It has to do whether it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit The pure spirit, the spirit of the living God is not to be outside something that we yearn for, but when we cry unto him and say, come Lord Jesus, then he comes to dwell within. That is such a powerful thing. What do we see here is a life that has been lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. What's what's the result here that we see is what God does when he comes to live within simple people like you and me. (laughs) The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells where? Raise your hand. (laughs) That's where he dwells. 
That's where he dwells, isn't he? That's power, isn't it? The one that raised Jesus from the dead dwells dwells right here. It's not about superheroes or great personalities, but it's the witness of Jesus who is alive in individuals. It is the Holy Spirit that defines Stephen as a real witness both to the message, to the resurrection, to the newness of life in the dawning of a new kingdom with a new Lord who is over all. The ruler is not the Sanhedrin, not the Romans, not Herod, not the fathers, not the prophets, not the temple, and not the Torah. The ruler, the Lord, the Prince of Peace, the Counselor, the Mighty God, Emmanuel, God with us, is Jesus. Who comes to live within people who are fragile and frail and and mess up and create havoc that are broken. He comes to us not to create superheroes, but to heal, to love, to rebuild. Doesn't cast us aside. Doesn't throw us away. Doesn't extinguish us. He restores The reality of this confession is found in two facts. And these are important facts. The first one is heaven opens. This is this is like putting gasoline on the fire for the for the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the people. Why? Because heaven came down and dwells in the temple in the Holy of Holies. You want to know where God is? That's where he is. What happens here is that full of the Holy Spirit, he looks up. You know, first when he looked up, his face glowed like an angel. Now they're starting to stone him and he looks up. And he sees heaven opened. He sees the place where heaven and earth is not just a one-way street. It's a two-way street. And what does he see? He sees the Son of Man. They know who he's talking about because Jesus called himself the Son of Man the whole time. He sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, what that means, whether he's saying, I'm welcoming you, this is the welcoming committee, whether he says that this is where authority rules, I'm going to judge what happens here, I'm going to be the judge, the lawyer, whatever it takes, I don't know what all it means within their culture, but when he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God the Father... And, and you believe that he's still dead. <laughs> this becomes even more of, of a problem to them. And he's, he's actually saying there is a relationship, heaven and earth. You see, the kingdom of God as it is in heaven 
is now on earth. There's, there's this unity between heaven and earth and what's beginning to happen. It's no longer just the temple to become the temple of the living God wherever they are, anywhere in the world. And heaven is now open to us. <laughs> it's not just us trying to reach heaven, but heaven comes down to us. And he's sitting there. This is incredible blasphemy to them. But to Stephen, what an incredible introduction to the reality of what happens to people who begin to follow Jesus. It's a two-way street directly from the Lord to his disciples and those who believe and follow him. It's a direct revelation about the role of the temple and the Torah. And this is what causes those who are uncircumcised in their hearts and ears to cover their ears and instead of listening to this kind of blasphemy. The second thing is, this is fascinating to me. He says, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. Now, I, I put together just a few verses out of Luke for us to take a look at where Jesus is talking about the glory. The glory is considered this light that shines on top of the, uh, on top of the, the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the light that has no shadow, the, the presence of God. This glory was present on the, day, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where the disciples, when they woke up, they saw Jesus in his glory. He's glowing with the light of an eternity and of a God. He speaks about how he's going to come in glory, the glory of the Father. And it's not necessary for, was it not necessary, he told his disciples after his resurrection, for the Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory. And then, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. In, in Acts chapter 3, when Peter is preaching, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. The, the, the fact that he is looking into heaven and says, I see the glory of God. <laughs> no wonder these guys can't handle that anymore. You see, he dies while calling on the name of the Lord, as it says, in Acts 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saul is a witness to his martyrdom, and though his initial reaction is to be zealous for the traditions of Orthodox Judaism, Saul hears this messianic way of interpreting the Scriptures. You see, heaven has been opened. When Jesus died, the veil in front of the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Heaven's been opened. Heaven is available. Heaven on earth happens inside of us. 
the relationships that we build with one another, the unity that we build, the forgiveness that we show, the comfort that we give, the help that we bring to one another, the interest that we have for one another, that is the kingdom of God on earth. It's the presence of the glory of God in a visible way seen through those who are filled with the Spirit of God. What an incredible thing. Heaven is open. The invitation is there to come, to be filled with this powerful presence of the living God. The empty tomb, the torn veil, and open heaven. The glory that touches our souls. It becomes a choice. This is the kingdom crossing borders, languages, cultures, divisions, and unifies people under the lordship of Jesus. Is that what we choose? Is that where we want to be? That's the choice. That's the choice. What happened that day was the beginning of a major movement that spread throughout the world and continues to spread throughout the world. Interestingly enough, that Ukrainian minister that was sharing this morning that as I was listening to him, he says, this is like Stephen. We see signs and wonders and we see people who are dying, Christians who are giving their lives while they're serving others. So this is, this is a time when we need your prayers. I, I sit there and I'm looking at that. He sees what's happening right now and interprets it in the light of the passage that we read together this morning. That was how he sees today. Today. I, I look at that choice and I say, are we going to follow after the Lordship of Jesus, are we going to allow our faith to be faithfulness and loyalty to him? That's the question, isn't it? The kingdom, it's a very political kingdom, but not like any kingdom of this world. <laughs> it's not like any kingdom here. It's a loyalty to a king who cares for us in such a way that he helps to break down the barriers that keep us from one another to build relationships and shows us how we can love one another in a way that the world can see that Jesus lives. Not that we're perfect, not that we've got it all together, but we've worked out how to forgive. We've worked out how to honor others. We've worked out how to lift up others and care specifically for the people who are poor. We're going to see that later on in the life of Paul when he goes through his Damascus experience of how important and viable the ministry is, even though he takes such a radical perspective of the Messiah. See, they're not talking about a new religion here. They're saying Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and this is the kingdom that he's building. It's, it's, quite, it's quite radical, isn't it? He's not like Muhammad building a new religion saying we're better than Christians. 
We're, we're beyond the Christians. It's not like Buddha saying, we're, you know, I'm going to build a new way of living together. If you live the way I tell you, then someday you'll reach nothingness, and then that's where it all ends. I mean, this is, this is different. This is the kingdom of God, is you and me living together, loving one another. We're going to, uh, we're going to sing our hymn of invitation here. Um, I think it's very fitting. I don't know how you do this, uh, Kay. You always pick hymns that seem appropriate. <laughs> we're going to sing only trust him. Only trust him. You know, we need from time to time to come to Jesus and say, Lord, I need to renew my trust in you. Or I need to place my trust in your hands. Or I need to renew my walk with you. Or I need to start my walk with you. It doesn't matter. But the place where we do that is where the invitation is there. Jesus is always knocking at our doors and saying, I want in, let me in. <laughs> let, let me work with you in whatever issue you've got. You know, we, we can encourage one another by praying for one another. And the best place for that to happen is right here. Right here. Right here. So I invite you while we're singing this song, only trust him. If you want us to join with you and pray with you for whatever you're going through right now, whether you need Jesus or you need to find trust in him, you just make your way down front here. And let's have this be an, an altar where God alters our lives. <laughs>